Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's show, how to handle a massive workload increase. Part three, here we go. Wow, we've covered a lot so far. <laughs> I knew this was <laughs> going to be a long one, but it's, it's a good one. This is good stuff. So, but for those of us who can't remember more, you know, back more than a couple of weeks, uh, where have we been so far on this topic? <laughs> uh, around the world in eighty days. So, look, I think we're on we're on point six. Um, so we're ha- we're halfway, probably more than halfway. And and um, the first point we made was make the right choices. Look, you have to understand that when all of a sudden there's a bunch of new work. The organization assumes that work is going to get done. There, there may be parts of it you choose not to do because it's low value. Um, maybe it, maybe that your sister team got eliminated and now you have twice as much work and, and they were doing low priority stuff, just like you're doing low priority stuff. And folks, don't be offended that I say that because every single one of us has sat at our desk at a given time and had something to do that was significantly important and would take three or four hours. And you knew you had to do it sometime this week. It's Tuesday. And you turned to, it's your A task for the week. And you turned to a bunch of C-level tasks and got them all done and said, I feel good. I got a lot done when in fact, you know, you didn't do the A task. So, so those C tasks ought not to be done if you have 85 A tasks to do. And so making the right choices was about recognizing that this new work was going to force some work out of your organization at the bottom. And you had to make the choice that you were going to do it and you were going to figure out how to do it. And in doing so, you had to understand that you didn't get to say no. You had to accept it and you had to allow the cascade of the prioritization of work to work through your organization. And you had to set the right standard in terms of being a leader and a manager because leadership comes up as an issue, as an opportunity for us as managers when we're um, when we're faced with this kind of crisis or this kind of incredible massive workload increase slash change. And then we went on to talk about positive mindedness. We don't do that a lot. You and I were just talking about that before we turned on the recorders that, you know, we haven't really talked about inspiration and leadership that much. We've alluded to the idea of leader tools over the years, but, but this is one of those cases where um, there are some things that we recommend doing that really aren't management. Uh, that's not right. They are things we can recommend managers do. We do recommend managers do. And yet there are a lot of people who would say, well, that's not management, that's leadership. And I'd say, well, okay, good. Let's call it leadership and let's recognize it's managerial behavior. And so therefore it's within the realm of manager tools, but you've got to tell people, Hey, I want you to be positive. We recommend immediately when you know something like this, you have a meeting, you tell them, Hey, we don't have a plan, but we're going to get this done. And I'm going to stay positive and I expect you to stay positive and uh, we'll work on a plan here pretty soon. And then we went through some do nots. We had, we really have, um, we've gone through three do nots, which is don't complain, don't blame, don't talk about the external organization, don't bitch about the layoff that happened or, or for that matter, gosh, don't, don't complain about a bunch of new business that somebody should have staffed up for. And I can't believe they didn't, you know, be happy about new business. That's a good thing. Don't whine with your directs. That's a common mistake. It's more common now than it was 
20 years ago, you and I have talked about this before, Mike, the idea that you need to be close to your team. And, and, and some people might mistake manager tools when we say have a relationship, that that means be close to your team. When we hear be close to your team, we hear, um, well, you need to be their friend. And, and we want you to be friendly with your folks, but never forget you're the boss. You've got a big red sign in your forehead that says, watch out, I'm your boss, I could fire you. You may, in fact, be a friendly person and you may have a good relationship, maybe even a personal relationship, and that's good as well. But you don't sit down and whine with your directs because if you do that, you set an example that whining is okay and they'll do more of it when you're not around, which takes time and time is not that time is not spent on solving the problem. And we don't tolerate whining at all. If you see whining happening and you're not there, we recommend you go up and you give some feedback or you just talk to them if you don't know the feedback model and say, hey, let's cool that. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be sharp. You don't have to be harsh. You just ask them to get back on track. Made much easier when you've already told them that you'll expect that from them the first time you tell them, hey, by the way, we have a massive workload increase. And I think that's it. I think that gets us up to number six, right? Don't don't assume everything can't be done. Yeah. So let's get into to the rest of the points we want to cover. And you just mentioned our point number six is do not assume everything cannot be done. And and this is part of what I think are two further pieces to this whole mindset. And of course, we're in the danger zone here of talking about leadership versus management. And we could agree that it's it's both leadership behavior and management behavior. Right. But great managers and leaders start off with an attitude that and a mindset that separates them from every other manager and leader out there. And one of those, one of those ways that they set themselves off is they don't start off with a limited mindset, right? They don't say, well, I can't all get done. Right. And usually succeeded by a lame plan for doing something slightly more than was already being done. They start off with a mindset that it can be done. Right. Yeah. That there is a way. And, and that mindset makes a significant difference in the outcome. Yeah. And since this, this cast was, is, is, uh, the writing of this cast finally after years of intending to was fomented by a question in the forums. Um, the thread has continued and somebody said, Mark, uh, you know, I'm having trouble with the whole, it can all get done. Be, you know, believe you can do it. And Horseman's Ninth Law, which is, embrace reality. And luckily someone else chimed in with me and said, look, if you want to be real, and by the way, we're not talking about reality because if you're predicting the future, it's not reality. But if you're going to predict that you can't do it, it will make you less effective doing it. And so um, we simply put off a detailed analysis of the future and analyses of the future are inherently flawed. Rather, we say, I, I believe it can be done. You know, I even include a thing in there that I have no proof, um, but I believe in God. So I don't expect to see God tomorrow, but I believe and uh, I believe I can get this this job done increases my chances for being effective. Look, when, when, when we tell ourselves it can't be done, first of all, I think what we're doing is giving ourselves an excuse. I've done it myself before. I think what we do is we're we're reducing the amount of energy we have available for it. I think we're justifying the lack of work that it takes, the monumental amount of work. It's like, well, if it can't be done, then there's no sense in trying. I think there's a there's a suffix to the statement, we can't do this. Look, if you say that, you're really not stretching yourself to be a total professional. The thing about times like this is that the people who have come out on top of such moments um, – We'll tell a story about Mike and some other stories here. We'll tell you, they'll just tell you, I just figured I had to do it. We got creative, we pulled together and we did it. 
And even sometimes they say, most people were saying it couldn't be done, but we just believed we would figure it out. We promise you folks, there is some way for all that work you've been given to be done. Now, I believe a big part of the problem with people assuming it can't be done is, and we'll talk about this more in assumptive goal setting, is that they are saying it can't be done based on what I know now and what we do now and how we do things now. Yeah, I think that's a huge piece of it, right? Instead yeah. of in, instead of sitting back and thinking about what the outcome is, right? I have to produce this report. They rather think of their work as the process by which they've currently been doing it, right? So I do this, and John does this, then Bill does this, and then I do this, right? Versus thinking about stepping back and say, okay, I got to produce the report under the existing circumstances. What's the best way for me to get the work? Yeah. Exactly. I have a small example. It's it's kind of lame, folks. Everybody can laugh. You can tease me when you when we meet in person, which, by the way, is one of the funnest parts of our job. We get to meet people who listen to us. And they always say to us, I feel like I know you. And, well, I'm sorry. I don't know your name yet. You just said, hi, Mark. <laughs> so please tell me your name. But um, a few years ago, when our travel ramped up enormously, you and I had a very not difficult, but but a, a a firm conversation. You had a firm conversation with me about the fact that I had told you in the last couple of trips home on Friday nights on the road, since I live about an hour and fifteen minutes from San Antonio Airport. That you know, I was telling you, I was I was the the joke was it wasn't a joke, but but the way the joke goes in Texas is the problem wasn't that I was falling asleep when I was driving. The problem was I was waking up when I was driving, <laughs> and I was almost in the ditch. Right, and yeah. and, and it's eleven o'clock at night on Friday. I've, I've flown out on Monday. I busted my butt for three, three and a half days. I'm coming home and I'm wiped out. And, you know, I, you know, the gas was 10 or 15 bucks to get down to the airport or back. No big deal. And we're trying to build a company. And, uh, but I'm literally, guys, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not asking for your sympathy or anything, but it was dumb. Literally was dumb. Now, all my life, I'd driven back and forth to San Antonio airport up until, you know, eight, nine years ago. And, and Mike said to me, are you nuts? What, what, you know, I said, look, I, I've got to drive. I, in fact, I have to because I'm, I'm so busy. I'm working right at the time I leave. I drive as fast as I can. I'm on the phone when, I, when I'm driving, eh, generally not Friday night late, and, and I just can't get it all done. And so how else am I going to get there? And I simply was doing what I had always been done, uh, what had always been done. And when clients asked me to stay longer, we could make more money. I would come home later. I mean, it would be midnight or one or two in the morning and I'd be tired. And you said, you're nuts. Let's, let's get you a car service. We'll get you a car service. Now, in my head, that didn't make sense to me. It did not make sense. I couldn't figure out how to get all the work done that we were being asked to do and keep driving myself back and forth to the airport. I literally had made driving back and forth to the airport a part of the solution because it was what I did. It was how, I mean, how, how many people sit around and going, what are the various ways I could get to the airport, right? You just don't think that. I mean, most people don't. They just say, well, you drive yourself to the airport. Maybe your spouse would would drive you, okay? So what happened? You said, we got to get a car. Okay, we'll try it. Well, guess what? I didn't have to worry about whether or not I had gas in my in my vehicle the night before. Um, basically, if I didn't have to drive to the airport, my my vehicle didn't have to leave my little town that I lived in. Suddenly, I didn't have to run errands as much the day before to get the car ready. Further, uh, we didn't have to pay parking. Further, I could work for an hour and a half in the car rather than drive. 
And so now I got an hour and a half back that I was rushing to get done before I got in the car. I wish you hadn't shared that because everybody now knows my, uh, my what my secret plan was. <laughs> it wasn't about yeah. getting you a lot. It was getting more work out of you. <laughs> yeah. Hour and a half, three, six more hours of work every week as I go back and forth to the airport. Or no, I guess three three hours. But look, it, it totally changed things. And suddenly I had more time. And I, I think I've told people before, there are three things I hate to do. I hate to eat. I hate to sleep. I hate to drive. And, and so driving, I hated it. And I'm a bad driver, even when I'm wide awake. I'm just not. I mean, I, I don't have lots of accidents or anything. I just know I'm not an effective driver compared to other people who really care about driving and know what they're doing. So I literally created the problem. It was, I, I mean, I remember telling you, I can't do it. What else are we going to do? And you came up with a completely different solution. And I went, oh. And since then, I mean, how many times have I driven? Maybe once or twice because I needed to run errands on the way down. And and I never drive if, in fact, I'm going to have to come back, you know, after eight or nine o'clock at night. And it was a totally different way of thinking. And I was blocked to it because, quote, I couldn't do it. Why? In part, because I said I couldn't do it. And that made me less creative. When I said I couldn't do it, that enhanced my belief that the solution I had now was right. When in fact, the solution I had now would not get us over the hump that we were facing. What is it? Einstein said that today's thinking will not solve tomorrow's problems because today's thinking is what got us into today's problems or today's thinking will not, will not solve today's problems. You have to have tomorrow's thinking because today's thinking is what got us into the mess we're in now. So look, um, there, there is some way for it to be done. Look, here's a good example. Maybe quality will go down. That's a big thing we hear from managers who call us and say, or email us and say, I, I don't feel like, um, I can do this stuff because my quality is going to drop. But, but maybe you'll discover that the lowered quality was tolerable for a while. I bet you there are thousands of executives in the world who, if your workload went up 40% and you said, I'm sorry, I can't do it because my quality is going to suffer by 5%. They said, it doesn't matter. We're way over quality standards and I'm willing to take some hits with customers in terms of quality a little bit here. If we can just get through this period until we discover what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And then let's make a decision later when we have a better handle on things. And folks, I'm not talking about making chips in a wafer fab. Okay. I understand that you don't suddenly <laughs> drop quality 10% there, but there are some things where quality could suffer a little bit and you'd be okay. Maybe the standards you've been working towards are really more than operations or sales or shipping really needed. And, you know, you, the standard used to be 90%, but you guys said, Hey, if we, I know you guys need 90%. That's what you need for your staffing levels. But if we put it at 95, that'd make it even better. We'd have less waste. We'd have better profit and so on. And so now we're up to 97% quality standards or shipping standards or whatever it is, when in fact, 93 or 94 would be fine because the loss, the quote loss, unquote, we take because we're going from 97 to 94 is more than made up for the fact that we get to keep these customers that we would lose if you said, oh, I'm sorry, we can't process this work. Maybe 80% of the orders you process don't need that third check or the standard for the manager checking randomly ought not to be one in 12, it ought to be one in 25. Because when you look back at the last 100 checks that you did, only one of them had an error, meaning only one in 1200 um, of your stuff had an error. And if you check them once every one out of every 25, that's still a sigma that's reasonable. Okay. 
Maybe errors increase 0.1%, but they're still below the 0.9% threshold. Yeah, your numbers will go down, but your numbers are still much higher than what you promise an internal or an external customer. Maybe 20% of the orders, maybe you could batch them together in such a way and you can outprocess them or give them to somebody who's brand new and they can do them much faster. It's only the more complex orders that you need for people working on. Maybe one less mailing a quarter, which takes 100 man hours or something like that, will save you enough money that you can hire a temp. Maybe up until now, allowing somebody to go on vacation could be done without an impact on the numbers because you've got some cross-training, you've got some overlap, you've got some productivity issues, uh, or you know, your productivity is good, but now you'll have to stomach some lesser numbers, volumes, some some reduced volumes for a week because you're so tight and you've got so much work that losing one person for a week is going to affect your numbers. But on the other hand, you're willing to stand up to people and say, yeah, our numbers are going to go down because we're losing a person. We're that busy. Um, whereas before we had cross training and we were able to everybody to step up a little bit, but we can't do that anymore. Everybody's already stepped up as much as can. And so our numbers are going to go down. We're going to take a little bit of a hit this week, but we're not going to deny people vacation because if we do that for too long, everybody's going to crash. At some point, if you cancel all the vacations indefinitely, people are going to crash and burn. And you have to learn to basically accept that you're going to massage the anger of some internal customers who notice your numbers dipping in return for being able to do this for two years because people are going to want to go on vacation over the course of the next two years. So if, if you'll just start by saying there's a way and I'm not going to buy into what everybody else is saying and feeling, you have a shot and, and it's possible. Without that, you got nothing, right? As, as Bob Rosberg, the golf announcer, he passed away, I think, last year, maybe in the year before. They were famous for sending, sending the golf telecast down to Bob Rosberg on the thing, specifically because he was the one that they were, he was famous for saying, he's got no shot, right? right. He's behind a tree, behind an outhouse, and uh, there's, there's a gigantic rock in front of him, and he, he's got no shot. And then, of course, he the golfer <laughs> figures out how to have a shot, right? right. Yeah. Look, there's, there's every time they said that, it's not like he, he, you know, he hit it in the hole every single time, right? I mean, there's no guarantee by saying you have a shot and that you can do it doesn't mean you're, ne- right. you're necessarily going to do it. But if you start off, start off saying you can't do it, you absolutely won't do it, right? So, yeah. Look, when you tell yourself, I don't have the staff, you're starting a downward spiral. When you say, we only did 600 actions last quarter, we cannot do 1,200 this quarter with one less person. You're reducing your creativity and you're setting a lower standard for your team. When you say the highest processing rate in any quarter was 85, this would require a processing rate of 128. There's no way you can't do it. Folks, you sound like a workload analyst and not a leader or a professional manager. And, and, and I say you, I apologize. I've done the same thing. I've accepted negativity and some fatalistic fatalism when I was thinking, and it's wrong and you have to catch yourself. If you sound that way, you're doomed. If the workload increase is as massive as we've been talking about, the 30, 40, 50% increase, particularly on a small team, you're doomed. It's not going to work. Um, my brother Walt once told me, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. I don't know where that comes from, but it's really good. Our recommendation here is that massive workload increases and driven by any number of factors, right? are a time for boldness and not for the incremental thinking of saying what we've been doing is fine. We just need to tweak it. 
This is not a time for resource requests. It's not a time for you to have a defeatist attitude. And some of you may think, that's just not me. I'm only incremental and so on. Well, okay. Um, you can probably be a good manager. Uh, we want you to be a good manager. And yet, as you go further in your career, you're going to have more and more challenges like this that require the melding of a manager and the kinds of things that people would ascribe to leadership, uh, particularly when you become an executive and there are thousands of people in your organization. And you're going to have to change that if you, if you want a shot at much more responsibility. And look, folks, I, you know, if we sound like cheerleaders here, well, okay, by God, we are. We're cheering for you. And in this case, cheers matter, we've discovered, right? You can't get through this time, a time like this, this workload increase with old thinking. You have to be creative. And that means avoiding thoughts and avoiding actions that destroy that creativity. That means being positive. And look, we admit it. We, we want to cheer for you. We, we want to help you be positive because that'll increase the chances you'll come up with solutions um, to it. You, you could say, well, it wasn't the positivity. It was solutions. We'll say, okay, fine. As long as you get the solutions and we have reason to believe positivity matters. Yeah. Good. So, you know, not assuming everything cannot be done. There's a flip side to that, a good flip side, which is assuming that things can be done. And we have a specific recommendation for you, which is to use assumptive goal setting, which we've yeah. previously done a podcast on, I believe. Yeah, exactly. When you get a massive onslaught of new work, basically what you're being handed is a new goal, right? That you have to, to that you have to achieve. That's what that new workload is. It's it's a new goal. Organizations don't assign work that they assume won't get done or they're okay with not getting done. This work, new work is not an optional thing. You know, if your executive boss or your manager boss says, do what you can do, they're being foolish. Okay. That was a euphemism. Uh, and that was as negative as you could possibly be. What they're saying is, this is more stuff that we expect you to do to the same standards you have met before. Figure it out. Okay. They may forgive you folks if you don't achieve it. But too many managers that Mike and I know have seen their predecessors muddle through such enormous changes and not get punished for it, right? Because, hey, it's hard. This is going to be big. You're, you may not make it. And yet you're probably going to be forgiven for it. But then what managers do is they mistakenly draw the impression that they too can just muddle through or that the company is saying it's okay not to do it. The company might forgive you for something, but in order for something to be forgiven, you have to have made a mistake to begin with. So the forgiveness that happens afterwards does not, uh, in, in previous instances, is not a license for you not to try to do it. They expect you to try to do it, and and it is the trying often that creates the forgiveness later. But if you know you're going to be forgiven, and so therefore all you do is incrementally add some energy to it and a little bit of frenzy and and probably a bunch of whining and complaining on your team as well, you may very well not be forgiven. And they'll say, gee, we, th we thought you'd do much better and be creative about this. We thought this would be an opportunity for you step up, think differently, modify your processes, tighten things up and really find a breakthrough that, you know, when you're just processing forms, maybe if that's what your team does, you don't normally think that way. Look, folks, this is your chance. People tell us all the time, I want to get on something special. I want to do something special. I mean, I don't know if you can see it, but if you've been looking for the right opportunity to excel, if you've been looking to get assign assigned to the right project or have a plum project assigned to you, or you want to get noticed and put on some special committee with some executive um, visibility, right? Okay. Those things are nice. 
But remember, those things all that you're you're asking for, a project or an assignment or whatever, they're a prelude to the work you're going to do when you're in there distinguishing yourself. It's the work that matters that you do when you get assigned to those things, when you're when a project is given to you and so on. And it's the work that matters now. This is your special project. This is your chance to shine. This is the thing that's going to get you promoted. Maybe it's not glamorous, right? But doing it well will get you noticed. Okay. Rest assured, peers around you are thinking, muddle through. Winston Churchill once said, uh, carry on and dread not. Um, you know, ha- have no dread, have no fear. And of course, General Patton, the U.S. general said, never take counsel of your fears. You know, he didn't say carry on and muddle through, although Wendy on our team often says that that's part of the British nature is to muddle through. But Churchill said, carry on and dread not. And we're suggesting don't muddle through. We're saying dread not. A name of a great ship, by the way, as well. If you take our approach as opposed to the muddle through approach, the professional approach, the leader's approach, you'll get noticed. Even if you don't achieve every goal, your approach will stand out and you will get noticed. I mentioned that we were going to share a couple of stories. Mike, I want you to share your story or if you want, I'll I'll try to do it, but I probably won't do it very well. There's a story, um, historical story of a number of years ago, uh, uh, a GE incandescent light bulb factory years ago, General Electric. The way they socialized new young engineers was that they gave each one of them when they started over a period of years, the same project, and they knew it was an impossible assignment, right? For years, uh, it was the same thing. Basically, light bulbs were clear, and so you could easily see the filament glowing inside. Unfortunately, with, with a clear light bulb, when you see the filament, looking at the filament directly is pretty harsh. It's a very, very bright light. All of us have probably seen modern light bulbs, and they're coated on the inside in order to diffuse that light so you don't you know, burn your retinas when you look at the light, and yet you get a lot of light throughout a room. They were trying to coat the outside of the light, but the coating rubbed off and it wasn't working. And basically, they had tried to put the coating on the inside a hundred different ways without without effect. They couldn't do it. So, as a way of teaching the new guy that he wasn't that smart, that all that book knowledge and school knowledge that he or she had learned didn't matter in the world of application and reality and and operational engineering rather than school engineering, they gave each new person over the course of a series of years the job of coming up with a diffusion coating on the inside of the bulb. And and again, as you, as I said, for years, everybody failed. They basically handed them a bulb and say, look, we need you to figure out a diffusion coating for this right on the inside. And everybody failed and failed and failed and failed. And then one year, one guy didn't fail. He got the job, he went off, and he came back some while later with a diffusion coating on the inside of the bulb and <laughs> and said, okay, here you go. Did it pass? Did it pass? <laughs> yeah, it worked. It, yeah. This, this, according to the story, this GE story, he didn't know that it was a test. He didn't know that it, the, that it was a test that they knew could not be done. Yeah. He Kobayashi didn't know Maru, he couldn't right? do That's, it. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. Kobayashi Maru, exactly right. He assumed they wouldn't give him a job he couldn't do. So he just figured he had to do it, and he didn't. He did it. I mean, uh, it is amazing what believing you can do something will do for you. You know, what's funny is none none of the other people, folks with a lot more experience than him, none of the other people would even bother trying because they knew it couldn't be done. And here he had done it, right? Yeah. So not buying into the idea of what you cannot do, right? It it can really, really help you. Okay, so, so look, tell your story. It's interesting. Though. I just want to comment on your story. It's interesting. I go back and as you're telling the story, I'm thinking 
back in my career and the things that I remember most, right? The things that I'm most proud of are not the big projects, not, you know, the $100 million projects, not the big stuff. Because when they're that big and they're resourced, the, the belief is that it absolutely can be done. We'll just throw, we'll just throw a ton of money at it, right? The things I'm most proud of, though, are the things where I didn't get money, right? There's some kind of improvement somewhere. Right. And most people, if not everyone, thought it was impossible. And we decided, in, in some cases, <laughs> I decided that we were going to get it done. And those are the things, even if they're small, those are the things that I think back most fondly about. So one of those stories that I think fondly back upon is the time when I was leading a very large IT organization, several hundred people. And, you know, I had taken the, over the organization and, and I, I kind of did my due diligence, went and talked to customers and I spent you know, probably a couple months doing that, uh, you know, the right. whole fit in, fit in, fit in. And then at the end of this 90 days, I pronounced uh, several objectives of which everyone, all my directs, everyone in the organization, even my boss, frankly, thought were impossible to achieve. But, you know, I'm an idiot. I, you know, I've only been there 90 days. I don't, I don't know what can be achieved or not can, can't be achieved. Yeah, I think, I think one thing, one thing you told me once, you said, Everyone knew it couldn't be done. I, I probably didn't know it couldn't be done. But I also knew that everybody also felt it really had to be done. And it had to be done and it couldn't be done didn't make sense. And so if you got rid of the it couldn't be done, by definition, you would have had to set the goals you set. People couldn't do it because they were living in it couldn't be done rather than even though they admitted intellectually it had to be done, they were living in the it couldn't be done. Yeah, I, I think that's um, absolutely true. And I guess part of the freedom I had to do it was, in the back of my mind, I said, well, if, if we don't achieve these things, we're going to fail. And even if I attempt to achieve these things and I don't get there, at least I'll be closer, right? So so it's, right. I don't want to suggest that I went into it believing we were going to fail and being comfortable with failure. On the other hand, I knew I would fail if I didn't get these things done. Right. Right. Yeah. So so once you once you get that in your mind, then it's pretty easy to set these these big goals, at least for me. So one of them, I won't go through all of them, but one of them was the uh problem ticket. So we had, you know, this is a fairly one of the applications in in this group was you know fairly large, ran the accounts for a large telecommunications company, you know, 10 million lines of code, something like that. Very, very important. And it had like 654, 657, something like that, open trouble tickets, things that were wrong with the application that users had reported. And I went back and did some research. And for the last five years, that was the average. And I would go down to 630, go up to 670, but an average of 654, five years. So this was just kind of one of these pernicious problems that everybody just told themselves couldn't go away. And so my goal to the organization, I got a lot of pushback, was we were going to get down to zero. Within a year, we would have zero. Impossible. Now, maybe it was impossible because right. we failed terribly. <laughs> we yeah. didn't hit our goal. We only got down to seven. From 650 down to seven trouble tickets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so needless to say, we failed, but you know, we, we still felt pretty good about it. Right. Right. And to be honest with you, folks, I just just to be clear, I didn't do anything. I had no hand in fixing it at all. All I did as a leader is say, we're going to do it. And Mark Madigan and Mike Morrisrow and Kathy Stoltz. Yeah, all these people <laughs> yeah. had, well, they went and did it. I just set, set the goal. So it's not like I'm, I'm all that great. I just, you know, was stupid enough or brave enough to set a goal. 
Thanks, everyone. I know this has been a long one, but I hope you're enjoying it. We'll finish this one up next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long.